As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our weekend review. Tottenham versus Man United was jokingly referred to as El Sacico in its build-up. But who's laughing now? Not Harry Kane, who now has to pretend to be interested in playing for Spurs under a different manager. Maybe an angry one. Elsewhere, Palace played with a pep in their step as they pulled off yet another win at the Etihad. Man City fans might be unhappy, but so am I for my prediction in the preseason previews on this podcast that Palace would be relegated. Yikes. And on the continent, Zlatan inspired Milan to victory in the Eternal City, or as it's known now, the city where Mourinho eternally complains about something. And Barcelona got back to win. Winning ways and everything was magically fixed now that Ronald Koeman has departed. Yes, that's exactly what happened. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who did what 90% of Americans did this weekend. He dressed up as a character from Ted Lasso, Taylor Rockwell. I did. I, I did not see as many Ted Lasso-inspired characters as I thought. In fact, most people we were around had no idea who we were and looked at us rather curiously. And I had attempted to draw chest hair with a, a sharpie since Roy Kent has chest hair going all the way up his neck and instead it just sort of looked like I had really bad prison tats and so I think with the shaved head and the bad prison tat neck tattoos I got more curious looks than I did like oh how adorable Ted Lasso characters okay let's start with the uh, uh-huh. the drawn on chest hair yeah. I don't believe a man with your beard doesn't have any chest hair so we can uh... I do I don't have it at the level that Roy Kent does nor do I have his I'm assuming it's for the character but if you if you notice Roy Kent's hairline, it becomes impossible to not pay attention to it. I don't know what that haircut is. I guess it's appropriate for a, a no-nonsense footballer, but he has no-nonsense neck-chest hair as well. I wouldn't question him on either there, frankly. But uh, t- <laughs> Taylor, I am surprised. I, looking on the, the gram and the social uh-huh. medias, that the amount of Ted Lasso costumes I did see out there. And to your point, it did surprise me because it is an Apple TV show. Not everybody has Apple. And I thought maybe not everybody outside of soccer Twitter watches the show. But evidently, maybe it's a bit more popular than, uh, than I thought. But then again, you said you weren't recognized. So that nullifies my point. Uh, yeah, I think, and we got a lot of like, is your is your daughter dressed up to be preppy? Because she was wearing the khakis with the uh, the polo <laughs> shirt and all that good stuff. So yes, uh, in, in the end, the mustache helped. Uh, people liked people liked her as Ted Lasso, though I think they just liked a cute baby dressed up. 
Well, if, uh, if your daughter was dressed up as preppy, she'd surely be uh, Zack Slater from Saved by the Bell, Taylor. Of course, my mistake, my mistake, which I guess makes me AC Slater. I'll take that. I got to get a Jerry Carroll, but I'll take that. Uh, well, which way are you sitting on your chair? Backwards or forwards? <laughs> I'm about to turn it around while you introduce Graham. <laughs> All right, let's do that. <laughs> Joining us here is a man who, much like Sergio Ramos, has never played for PSG and never will. Hello, Graham Rutherford. <laughs> oh, that's one way to break that to me. Ryan Bailey, that I'll never play for a Champions League club, but I guess it's probably time I accept that. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. You can uh, be safe in the knowledge that you have worn a PSG shirt, your lovely That's one, true. one of many in your wardrobe, and maybe Sergio won't do that either. That 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 is true. I'm surprised at how that transfer has gone. It has not gone well, and Florentino Perez has come out of that looking uh, better than he did when he was standing behind Sergio Ramos crying at the Bernabeu a few months ago. <laughs> do you know I don't know much Spanish Graham do you know how to say Huay the lads in uh, Spanish because it does feel like Newcastle might be his new destination maybe if he'll yeah. accept it I hadn't thought about that but you might be onto something there yeah I was trying to think of who may they might go for in January and Sergio Ramos feels like a candidate now Philippe Coutinho he feels like he might be he, he's not not getting a lot of love at the Camp Nou as we may find out a little later in this show Graham that is putting it lightly. Yes, I think <laughs> half the half the Barcelona team, if Newcastle want them, could be at St. James's Park in January. Indeed. Uh, before we move on to the showgram, I'd like to ask you about your Halloween, if you had a good one. Uh, my experience, uh, I haven't lived in the UK for a long time, but it's a little bit more menacing Halloween in the UK. It's a bit more throwing eggs and doing mean things, whereas in the US it's a bit more you know, fun for the kids and go out and have a party dressed up. Uh, How is it round your way? Uh, just closed the blinds and turned all the lights off and just sat in the living room and pretend we weren't in. So that's a normal night for the Rubbins. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, that was that was just a, a standard Sunday night. To be in- fair, the, the house and development that we have moved to is very family-orientated and last night was a bit of an eye-opener where there were tens of children running around dressed as the Grim Reaper and various witches and so on which was quite terrifying when i didn't really know what was going on but yeah there were there were a lot of children but we only got the doorbell rang about a couple times we must have a reputation oh that's good well uh, i'll let you know by the way in italy it's not really celebrated very much i haven't seen too much halloween uh, decorations or costumes around but last night um, i could hear this sort of sort of ghostly whining and moaning but it was coming from the direction of the stadio olimpico um we'll get to that a little bit later on uh, finally taylor Week without me last week. Did you miss me? <laughs> we we did, man. We didn't have your uh, your long rhyming introductions. I had to try to come up with one of my own. It's always risky. It's always risky when Ryan Bailey is not around to host the show. Oh, bless you. Thank you very much for saying that. I missed you both terribly as how, well. How many Starbucks did you visit, Ryan? <laughs> Quite and, a is, lot. and actually, is November first your least favorite day because you can't get your pumpkin spice latte at, at Starbucks anymore? Oh, alas, Graham, alas, it happens every year. And uh, yeah, I went to many Starbucks. Yesterday, I went to two different Starbucks in two different places, in fact. Uh, I'll have you know, I do miss it very much. And I bought all, I bought a load of the grounds to put in my machine at home as well. So uh, I... Uh, I've, yeah, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And I'm unashamed, Graham. On that note, shall we move on to talk about some stuff that happened at the weekend? We'll start, why don't we, with the Premier League. Arsenal are now three points behind Man City after 10 games. Who'd have thunk that? They uh, managed a 2-0 win at Leicester. Uh, Liverpool were held 2-2 at home to Brighton. They blew a 2-0 lead in that one. That allowed Chelsea to open up a three-point lead at the top of the table with their 3-0 win at Sergio Ramos's Newcastle. The Geordies do remain 
remain winless this season. But gents, the headline game from this weekend, probably Tottenham nil, Man United three. As I mentioned in the intro, Taylor mockingly referred to as El Sacico. And that came to pass on Monday, Nuno Espirito Santo uh, seeing his last day at Tottenham after just 10 games in charge. What do we make of that one, Taylor? Uh, by all accounts, it seems like a thing that had just been a long time coming, which is surprising to say for a person who was appointed not that long ago. Um, but it was, I think, my, Jonathan Wilson wrote a very good piece for The Guardian, and my favorite takeaway line, uh, brutal as it is, was uh, Spurs under Nuno were a manager everybody knew was nowhere near first choice, struggling with a squad where morale was broken. And it, and it does sort of feel like he is a manager to get the best out of players in a, like, in a sort of upwardly mobile situation where his stoic resilience is more of a like a, a thing to be earned and sort of build off of versus when things seem bad that stoic he just looked so sad on the touchline this weekend <laughs> and it felt very much like he was going to be uh given his marching orders and he was and it and it does make sense for how they played for how they've looked this season but it also seems similar to Manchester United that it's indicative of a lot of other problems at the club that I'm sure appointing a big name manager will seek to disguise it took 72 days to appoint Nuno and he yep. was in the job for 124 days there we go <laughs> And in that time, that was them looking at other options and pursuing people and then having that fall through and pursuing somebody else and having that f fall through and then going for Gattuso and having the fans make that fall through. And so they ended up with Nuno, who I, I always felt like would have been a good appointment from the jump if they had brought him in to do what Nuno does and play Nuno ball and they backed him and they'd made some signings and maybe moved Harry Kane on and used that money to reinvest. And then you sort of are building around a manager. But when you're giving him a two-year deal charging him to play attacking football, but shore up the defense. It's, again, a common thing this weekend and beyond is clubs asking managers or players to do a lot with a little and then being furious when they cannot. And so I don't think this was working. I don't think he would have turned it around. I understand why they sacked him, but I simultaneously think it's mildly unfair that the people who put him in charge and maybe oversaw the shambles that was this summer are now still there and uh, tasked with figuring things out when they've been tasked with that before. Um, just so we've got the terminology correct here, did Tottenham win or lose El Sakiko? I can't quite work that out because did they, uh, I think they may believe, maybe they won it. Maybe they won it. I'm going to say one. they won it. I think Spurs fans would say they won because it's a new manager coming in. I think maybe the the dissatisfaction with the current uh, people operating that club is is pretty... Uh, obvious, and so maybe I think it's it will bring about change. It will bring about something positive, or it will bring out about Antonio Conte, who will bring about a lot of <laughs> negative, and then some positive. And Taylor, the uh, the article, the Jonathan Wilson one you mentioned, I think if we're thinking of the same one, it's the one mm -hmm. titled Spurs have one of the great stadiums and all it cost them was the team, which is a fairly mm -hmm. sensational line. Uh, but it got me thinking, is there a comparison with Arsenal who built themselves a world-class stadium um, a, a couple of decades ago now, I suppose? Was it 2005, 2006? Doesn't have a and cheese room, though. <laughs> it doesn't have a cheese room or a, or a, a what do you call it, tunnel, a, a tunnel with glass around it, something fancy <laughs> like that. It does have like Coldplay concerts. <laughs> yeah, an aquarium tunnel, that's right. Like that um, Fl Floridian baseball team with their aquariums around the side of the field. I'm getting distracted. The point was... Um Arsenal built themselves a world-class stadium at the time, certainly, and they survived it under the stewardship of Arsene Wenger very well on the field. Can we directly correlate 
Taylor, the building of the stadium with what's happened with Tottenham? Or is it kind of they've just been a bit spursy? They've made the same kind of transfers that maybe they made during, you know, they spent the Gareth Bale money unwisely and didn't quite go for the finished product players. Um, it's the same sort of Daniel Levy patterns have happened still. Um, I, I think there's there's a, a a pretty strong correlation between the building of the stadium and, and the, their present position, mostly just because one, and this is the point of the Wilson article, one is just so glitzy and glamorous and has every bell and every whistle. Uh, the other line that I thought was pretty great was, this generation, I think referring to the fans, this generation certainly is entitled to feel frustrated. It is not even a case of wondering whether the cost was too great. Could they maybe have scaled back on the luxury and bought a midfielder? And that, I think think it is sort of the connection there that it feels like at a time when they've spent money to have this massive stadium that is state of the art and so beautiful the on-field product in that stadium is not beautiful and free-flowing and fun to watch and so it just feels like they thought yeah we we've reached this level now we'll stay at this level so now we're going to build this facility to allow us to stay at this level rather than we have to keep building the squad and developing it to be able to stay at this level regardless of what the stadium looks like i i think i think the biggest difference for me anyway is actually more of a, a a mentality difference with the building of the stadium. So I haven't read Jonathan Wilson's art, Wilson's article. I have to say, mm-hmm. so um, I don't know fully the the fully formed arguments that he's making. But like Marine under Mourinho, Spurs spent money, and mm-hmm. I know they didn't spend as much in the summer. But Christian Romero comes in. I thought he was a very good signing. So they have made signings. But for me, with the appointment of Mourinho in particular, there was a change in Tottenham, or maybe just Daniel Levy's. Uh, mindset that all of a sudden they needed to act like a big club because they had this this spaceship of a stadium and so Mourinho was was a poor fit for that for for that club at that time after Pochettino so for me it's it was yeah. more it was more the the emphasis it put on Spurs to act like a big club rather than just make the, the good decisions that they needed to make that that was the biggest change for me yeah Graham that's a good point because it's like you've got You've got the, the big club stadium. We need a big club manager. We can't let anybody dictate what we're going to do with our squad. We're holding on to our biggest players. And, and it seems like there was this sort of attitude that they were going to stay at this level. They were going to be this top-tier team. But simultaneously, there wasn't reinvestment. There wasn't selling Harry Kane when he clearly didn't want to be there to finance rejuvenation in the squad. And that doesn't have to mean that you're not a big club. It doesn't mean like that you're not at that top level plenty of big clubs have to sell their prized assets and that's how they finance rebuilding the team and and that's part and parcel of the game and so it's it's a weird thing in my mind that Tottenham have sort of embraced this we're going to be this big club mentality but simultaneously done so in a way that doesn't really have much rooting in how things are actually working or how things are actually going and so we end up at this impasse where they have a manager that they didn't seem like they really want playing a style that they didn't really want for fans who didn't really want it in a stadium that is nice but maybe not as essential as other things and so I don't think they'll regret it and I think Daniel Levy will probably be a venerated figure 30 years from now or 20 years from now when Spurs have more money and this nice facility but for right now I think a lot of questions uh, have to be asked of what they're doing. Mm. It will be a wonderful NFL stadium in 20 to 30 years. You're this quite is true. right, Taylor. This is true. Um, so getting to the game itself, a 3-0 win, as we say, for Man United with goals from Ronaldo, Cavani and Rashford. We'll get to uh, United in a second, Taylor. But why don't we start, we'll, we'll continue talking about Tottenham in this game. And what exactly Nuno was doing here? I mean, 
I didn't see a real press. I didn't see a real shape. I didn't see a real game plan here. No shots on target in the last two hours on the field for Tottenham. So with that that context, you can see maybe why he was walk, uh, walked uh, after this game. Um, uh, you know, this is quite a different team, Taylor, from the one, or quite a different performance, I should say, from the one uh, against Man City, Man City, excuse me, on the opening day. Absolutely. And, and I think that my interpretation is basically that Nuno got this game wrong, which is not a bold statement for when you lose 3-0 at home. Uh, it's always going to go that way. But what I mean is that I think he thought Solskjaer and Manchester United, after the loss to Liverpool, would respond by being overly aggressive. And they would throw everything at this game in an attempt to show, we're still Manchester United, we can be dominant. And I think that informed what Nuno was trying to do, starting Ben Davies over Sergio Reguilon. That, to me, says that he thought he would need a little bit more defensive stability, wouldn't need as much attacking thrust. The midfield three of Oliver Skip, Giovanni Lo Celso, and Pierre-Emile Hoybier, uh, that, to me, felt like a defensive midfield that's going to kind of block passing lanes, like take, up, like take up space in a proactive way, win the ball, not let Manchester United do what they wanted to do. And then you've got players up top in Lucas Mora and uh, Hyung-Min Son who can counterattack and be pretty ruthless at that. And so I think he's set up to be more defensive and frustrate Manchester United, not expecting that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester United would be not more defensive, but be more like putting more emphasis on the defense and going with the back three and mm. clogging the midfield themselves and forcing Spurs out wide. And that's where Spurs didn't have attacking strength. And so I think Nuno maybe overthought this one or at the very least kind of gambled the wrong way on what Manchester United did, which certainly didn't help him demonstrate that he knew what he was doing and knew how to get the best result on the day. It's, that, if that's what he was thinking, that's such a misreading of the of the situation mm-hmm. exactly. because one of the things I would be looking to do against this United team as an opposition manager is is press high on them because mm-hmm. they are we've used the term a lot press resistant in, in recent podcasts. United are not press resistant at all, and if we go back a few weeks ago to um, Tottenham beat Newcastle three two, um, I think that was the first game after maybe after the London derby defeat, North London derby defeat, and in that match, I watched that match, covered that match, I saw a lot of things that were was stuff that Nuno could build on, and one of the things was how good Endombele was in the attacking mid- midfield position behind um, Kane and Son as a kind of front two. I know, I know, I know it was still a four two three one, but Son was kind of pushing centrally. To, to link up with Kane and Endombele was brilliant and and at watching that match he was one of the players in, in that position I went that's a solution for Tottenham to link the midfield and the attack because that's been an issue even going back to the first few games where Spurs were winning there wasn't that connection between the midfield and the attack and Endombele is a player who can do that and lead the high press as well from midfield very effectively so to have Endombele on the bench for this one and and for Nuno to do everything that you say there, Taylor, to to think the United after that Liverpool mm-hmm. match where they just got picked off after playing a four two four, I fully expected Manchester United to be in a more defensive structure for this match. So I just don't understand how he's read the situation in that way and why he's made the the calls that he did. Then it's either like he he got it wrong, as is my theory, or didn't think his club could take it to Manchester United and couldn't be proactive enough to make them uncomfortable and get the result. And again, either way, I think if you're Daniel Levy watching that and seeing the fight, like the reactions of the fans, certainly, but just the overall performance on the field, regardless, you have to come away with the idea that this club isn't really functioning. These players aren't really playing for the manager anymore. He doesn't seem to know how to get the best out of him, and he does not have the backing of the fans. I I really did feel bad for him. I think that's maybe coloring my coverage of this one a little bit, just how 
angry. People seem to be at him. And I think he was a sort of a conduit, a vessel for the frustration with everything going on at Spurs right now at a boardroom level and beyond. But uh, on the day, I think not the greatest game plan and certainly not great when it ends up being zero shots on target. They have, what, nine he, goals from their first 10 games. Not not a great start for Spurs yeah, overall. But he, he didn't he didn't help himself, Nuno, either. That's maybe why, why yeah. I don't have so much sympathy. So when he comes into Spurs, we're going, OK, he's going to use the Wolves blueprint. And we said in our season preview that he's going to use, uh, you know, a back three with wing backs. We never saw that. So he's he decided to change his style and when that style didn't work, didn't work, he still didn't go back to his default, which would have been a back three with wing backs. That would have been with midfielders making bursting runs through the middle. You know, you think about how Adama Traore played for that Wolves team. Who's who was doing that? Who had the freedom to do that for his Spurs team? And even in match decisions like the big, the big moment of descent in this match wasn't at halftime or at full time. It was when Lucas Mora gets taken off for Stephen Bergwijn, and right. Mora had been maybe Spurs the the only player Spurs had in the match until that point who had looked threatening, and so you think what I I don't understand that change because it wasn't a as far as I'm aware it wasn't a tactical shift or anything like that. It was it was pretty much a light for light shift, but you're taking off the only player who was playing well. Um, so I I think. There was definitely a disconnect between, you know, Daniel Levy talked about Spurs' DNA before they appointed Nuno and then went and got Nuno, who was very much a Mourinho-like sort of coach, but they didn't even get the good version of Nuno Ball. Like, that, there wasn't even... that He didn't bring any of the stuff that had worked for him at Wolves. And so I agree with everything you say, Taylor. Like, a lot of the frustration is about the, the direction of the club as a whole, but Nuno also, he has himself to blame for loads of the decisions he made in those three months that he was in charge. Graham, I agree with you. What I get confused by, though, is like you sort of, I feel like if you are Spurs, you know who you're appointing, and you know you're appointing a manager who, with Wolves, at times generated a lot of frustration with how sort of defensive and static his teams could be. And yes, there's tons of sweeping transitions to attack and great counterattacking play and some great goals in there. But I remember Daryl at times thinking, maybe this is the limit of Nuno Ball. Maybe this is the limit of what he can do. So if your Spurs appointing him, to me it's not dissimilar from a director casting Tom Hardy and then like Tom Hardy dropping out and instead bringing in like Gerard Butler. And it's like, just do what Tom Hardy would have done. Like, you know, he can't do that. You know, he's not going to be that level, which maybe shows you where I rank Tom Hardy and Gerard Butler and their acting abilities. <laughs> but it's sort of like if you're bringing in a manager who has all this defensive understanding, it's a back three, it is wing backs, it is sort of frustrate the opponent and then counter, and you're hiring them and saying like, yeah, that was great. Do more of that. But also be like proactive at attacking and fun. Like, you're sort of giving them a message that they cannot possibly execute. And to some extent, I feel like that's what he was trying to do, was bridge the two. And if you're not 100% committed to an idea, but you're 80% committed to one and 20% to another and then 20% to another, I'm not great at math. But uh, <laughs> my percentages tell me that that's not possible and will lead to more confusion. Now I'm just uh, distracted thinking of Jared Butler playing both the Cray twins and maybe Bang right? as well. Yeah, I bet they would both be loud. <laughs> They'd be something, all right. Yeah. Um, one last question on Spurs from me, Graham. I think one of your twenty-six articles you wrote this weekend was uh, along <laughs> the lines of um, ha Spurs should have cashed in on Harry Kane while they had the chance. Yeah. How much can we blame Kane for this situation? It's safe to say he didn't really do much for Nuno, certainly in the Premier League. Um, is is that Nuno's fault? Is he supposed to get the most out of that kind of player? He, mm. he he's been criticised by Spurs fans for not getting the most out of Son and Kane, which is it may be valid, but when you've got Kane 
downing tools to some extent how much can we blame him yeah so i think the first thing to say is that that the system that nuno used certainly didn't help kane he he felt isolated a lot however having said that i i do think harry kane should be pretty ashamed of himself for the way that uh, he played under nuno i have to say um trying to stay away from hot takes here but for for all mourinho's faults kane worked really hard for mourinho that seemed like, you know, even when things were going poorly under Mourinho, Kane was, his body language, I know these are great intangible things and they can't really be plotted on a, on a stats graph or anything like that, but Kane's body language, you know, it was always about, always about picking up others around him. He barely lifted a finger for, for Nuno. And obviously there are other factors at play here in that he didn't get his summer move away from, from uh, Spurs. And maybe that wasn't a reaction in terms in um, response to the manager, but in response to Daniel Levy and that that refusal to to allow him that transfer. But he is still an icon of that club. He's probably the best player that they've had in in a number of decades, and so he has a responsibility to be a leader. And he hasn't been that leader for uh, for Spurs this season. And I think he played a pretty big part in this not working out for Nuno. I'm going to extend my my acting analogy one step further. It's as though Harry Kane were like Helen Mirren, who was supposed to star with Tom Hardy, and now she's starring with Jared Butler. And they're like, don't worry, we're going to bring in somebody great. And then the third lead is like Pauly Shore. And it's just like, all right, this this production has gone off the rails. This is not what I was told was going to happen. And now I think you see Harry Kane sort of going through the motions of this isn't a reinvented squad. This isn't a rejuvenated Tottenham team with a new manager who has exciting ideas. This is sort of us treading water and bringing in some people who are fine, but not going to push us to that next level. I think if you're Harry Kane, you sort of know what's going to take, or you feel like you know what, what it's going to take to push on and, and be consistent in the top four, be consistently challenging for the title or going deeper in the champions league. And what Spurs have been doing isn't going to do that. And so I, I understand the frustration towards him, but I also understand why he does look so frustrated and does look so isolated at times in that team. Taylor, I feel like this is your way of breaking to us that you have written a screenplay. Uh, <laughs> is this the case? Or, or that you're Sorry, re- Tom Hardy, Helen Mirren, and Polly Shore. That's it's either great. the screenplay, Taylor, or you're a really bad executive producer who can't hold on to his stars and making bad substitutions in your movies. Uh, you know, I mean, a little bit of both. Potato, <laughs> potato sort of situation. Uh, Taylor, why don't we talk a little bit about Manchester United as well? Such is our want we on must. this podcast lately. We must indeed, Taylor. We must. Uh, Oli, uh, according to Arlo White, Oli Gunnisosko having three games to save his job. One down here, arguably. But mm. I ask you, is it important not to get too excited about this one? How much has changed, given that Spurs didn't give much of a fight yeah. here? Um, what are your thoughts on on Ollie's survival and whether this staves it off a little longer? Uh, I, they are varied, are my thoughts. I will do my best to be succinct, which means get ready for six minutes of oh, me boy. talking. Uh, I, I think that like I understand why managers want to do, or why clubs want to do that. They give a manager some time. I in theory but it always ends up feeling to me like you're delaying the inevitable and i think maybe that is what i i focused in on a bit more is like why would you want to delay that why would you want to hold off making this decision and maybe it's just you don't want to have to be the one to make that choice i think that is a little bit the case with ed woodward who is supposedly leaving at the end of the season or in january and i think maybe doesn't want to have to be the one to make another big decision that could permanently impact the club or at least impact the club for the next couple years but I think to look at this game, it's tough to know exactly 
what we can take away from it aside from Ole does seem to be able to get a response from players against a team where they fire their coach the day after for being pretty mediocre. And I, I think a lot of it is just that Ed Woodward likes Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and thinks he's a positive influence. And I think compared to Jose Mourinho and Louis van Hall, I think the locker room, see, I guess the vibe is better. It seems like there's more of, of a ability to communicate with Ole than there was with Jose, who seemed to communicate a lot via the press. And I think fundamentally the board, the people in charge, just like having Ole there more than they like the uncertainty of a new manager coming in who's going to demand things differently. And so I think they're hoping against hope that he figures it out and these three games go well or two of the three go really, really well and give them something to build off of. And so I think that the board will happily look at this as this is the response we needed. It's 3-0. Everybody's excited to go again. And and I think I understand that temptation, but if you delve a little deeper, you look at the attacking options they have and how few of them they were able to play because of this formation change. And is this the thing that we're going to stick with going forward if you're Manchester United? Is this Mm. the way he's going to play? Is this what they've been building toward that he talked about? It doesn't feel like that's the case either. Yeah, that that's the big question for me. So I, I think this this game as a one off match was was good for Solskjaer. It 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 showed that he had a willingness to change the system and address some of the issues mm-hmm. that they had. As soon as the the team sheet dropped, this was an interesting one to me because first of all, Varane's back, but he's part of a, a back three. That maybe wasn't so surprising given United's defensive struggles recently, and Solskjaer has used a back three a number of times in the past. But most notable, in my mind anyway, was the the deployment of Cavani and Ronaldo as a front two. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I ever expected to see that when when Ronaldo signed. And um, th- that did solve a lot of the issues. You know, they weren't as easy to, to play through. And yes, of course, everything is qualified with the acknowledgement that Spurs aren't very good at the moment, but you can only beat who is in front of you. And I thought Solskjaer's changes worked pretty well. And this was a revert to the default for Solskjaer. This is how United should have played against Liverpool. Ditch the high, pra- high press, stay compact, sit deep hit out on the counter-attack, uh, counter-attack, give your attackers space to play. And that's how Man United have played these big games before. And so it, this this worked a lot better. However, as Taylor, I think you referenced there, for all that this system worked, it does raise questions about the long-term planning of this team. Is this how Solskjaer is going to set up his team from now on? And if so, what does that mean for, mm-hmm. I've mentioned previously, Man United's wide forwards is where they're strongest, in my opinion, in their squad. Mm-hmm. So... You know, at least Greenwood, Marshall and Rashford can play as a second forward. It might not be their best position, but they can play there. But what about Jaden Sancho? Mm-hmm. I don't see a place for Sancho in the midfield three. I don't see him as one of the front two. So where is this place in this team? The player they've chased for two years is one of Europe's best wide forwards. Is he now going to play as a wing back? I don't think so. So nope. yeah, that that is as a one-off match. This for me, this was a, a success for Solskjaer. But ask ask me in a week's time, kind of what mm. the overall picture is, and I think we'll know a lot more after that Atalanta game and that City game, and and we'll find out more on how he sets up his team. Whether this was just, uh, you know, a band aid on a wound, or whether this is actually some kind of long term plan, I, I think that's still unclear. And to preempt some emails, because I saw this discourse a lot online. But Jaden Sancho played in a bunch of different positions for Dortmund and could be one of the front two and could be this and could be... And that's the point. Is like, yeah, the, uh, yes, he could be an attacking player if he's trained there and gets the reps. But with the depth they have, I don't know how you fit in. And that's not where he signed to play right. either. And that's the larger point is that if you are if you're trying to like further this idea that they're building towards something that they've been having this logical growth as a club, as an organization, as a team towards being this cohesive unit that plays attacking football in a back three with a front two, 
then you look at the players they've assembled and the players they brought in and the players who aren't getting minutes and it, and it doesn't really add up. And so to me, this feels more likely to be like the Leeds result, like the Newcastle result, than a dramatic turning point in the season. If anything, I think if they replicate this against City, I think that there are gaps that Manchester City can absolutely expose. And I think they're better at playing under under the press or they're playing at finding their way through if, if United want to go compact. And I think... It's positive signs that it's Ole pivoting and being more defensive and showing that he can change some things up. I wanted to believe for a moment that it was his shot at Antonio Conte by playing in a back three, since that is Antonio Conte's like <laughs> trademark. Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see. So it's a strong result, but overall, I think I would be wary to take away too much from this game. Everyone in English football has just spent the last week watching tapes of Antonio, Antonio Conte and yep. how his teams play. Ed Woodward, Solskjaer, Daniel <laughs> Levy. <laughs> he can only go to one. There we go. All right. Uh, thank you very much, gents. We're going to come back after this break and talk about the other team in Manchester whose affairs didn't go quite so well over the weekend. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. Let's talk about Pep Guardiola's 200th Premier League match. There was a happy Gallagher at the Etihad. It wasn't Noel or Liam, though, after this one. Man City nil, <laughs> Crystal Palace 2. Goals from Wilf Zaha and the aforementioned Connor Gallagher in this one. A red card from Eric Laporte as well before the half. Uh, Graham, um, does seem that Crystal Palace rather like playing at Manchester City, doesn't it? Yeah, so... I assume then you've seen their record as well in mm. in Manchester in general. It's not just against uh, City. So they've got four wins, two draws, and only one defeat in the last three years against City and United in in uh, in Manchester, which is quite incredible. That's pretty good. No, Andros Townsend to put in a 30-yard banger in this one, but they certainly got the job done, didn't they? And as I mentioned, Graham, at the top of the show, uh, I didn't have much faith in Patrick Vieira in the preseason, I thought they'd really struggle this team. I mean, they're not exactly getting wins left, right and centre. They're getting a lot of draws, this Palace team. But uh, they are playing well. They, this is a team very different to Roy Hodgson's team, isn't it, Graham? Yeah. They, they like to get forward. They're actually playing some entertaining soccer. They're probably glad they avoided Nuno, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I bet they are. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, he that was his job, wasn't it? He, yep. was, he was pretty much uh, sat down at the table, ready to sign the contract, and it didn't happen. But yeah, I I was I was with you before the start of the season. I don't I don't know if I made the prediction they'd struggle quite as badly as as you thought, but I definitely believed Vieira was a, a complete unknown quantity. I didn't really know what to expect from him at all. And this season, they have played a much more proactive style of football they've looked to control possession and generally shift away from the sort of pragmatism of uh, the Roy Hodgson era but I actually think this match 
was a bit of a return to that. This wasn't the typical Palace performance we've seen this season. You know, while there is a bit of a revolution happening under Vieira, I'm tempted to say that muscle memory kicked in for a lot of the Palace players here and they they recalled a lot of the defensive principles that had been instilled... um, under them by by Hodgson those those principles served them well as they sat deep obviously the red card helps them that those circumstances help Palace when Amir Laporte gets a red card and and sit um, Palace have something to protect but they did it very well you know it didn't feel like I think City didn't pr- uh, produce a single big chance as as uh, as the data collectors call it so that kind of tells you how well they plugged the gaps at the back and how well they defended and as obviously they get the second goal on the on the counter attack so. Even though this was their best result of the season, I don't think this was actually an illustration of the good work that Vieira has done. But he'll be very pleased that he kind of has that option. He still has that option to go back to the pragmatism of, of Hodgson. Yeah. He'll and if pleased. you contrast this with, with Spurs for a moment, since Nuno was maybe nailed on for Palace and then ended up at Tottenham, like like we're talking about a Spurs team that didn't sort of respond, didn't have that next motivation, didn't have that way to figure things out. And looking at this Palace team for a second, it, even if it does feel a little bit pragmatic in the way they played this game and a bit more like Hodgson I saw a lot more energy and a lot more effort and there was so much dedication to tracking back and tracking runs and sticking with runners and even a few times they didn't they heard about it the teammates got on each other's backs and I think this was a game that still could have gone either way and I think there's not a ton to take away from a Manchester City perspective but for Palace I think it it shows that bringing in a manager who can sort of incorporate some new ideas, stick with some more like traditional styles of play and mostly just encourage the team and get that next level energy, that can make a big difference. And I think we're seeing that difference from Vieira, at least in this game. The the, the difference that, so if you're looking at his performance and even though it was a Hodgson-esque performance, there were still differences there as you referenced here, Taylor. Like when they score the second goal, Palace have bodies in the attack and they take their time to actually get a quality shot away rather than rushing it. So obviously it's Gallagher that scores the second one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, But Michael Olise has the opportunity to take the shot, doesn't take the shot, passes to Gallagher and then Gallagher just waits that little moment to get the shot away. That to me feels like the Vieira influence where they're kind of backing their technical ability. So even though it was quite a counter-attacking style, there still were signs of, of, of his work. Graham, that's a great point because even on that second goal, it's Gallagher, I, I think, running from, I don't know, like 40 yards behind the play. And and I have to believe that under a more conservative manager who's trying to see the game out, you don't have midfielders committing to getting involved in the attack in those final moments or later on in the game. And Gallagher sort of, I think, breezes past Rodri, I think it is, who just kind of never picks him up and allows him to get in the box and get open. But I, I, I'm guessing that under Hodgson, maybe there's less of an emphasis on the whole team getting forward and then picking their opportunities to score. Yeah, a, a great afternoon for Conor Gallagher, uh, another Chelsea Academy player who probably won't do great things for Chelsea, but is a, a good tea, a good player. At least, he's, at least he's getting games, unlike Yikes. Billy Gilmore. Unlike I'm Billy Gilmore. Ex- exceptionally bitter about North City at the moment. I thought we'd bring him up at some point, Graham. I'm glad you did, because we've, we've made the link there. But uh, as good as Gallagher was in this, I think, um, Taylor, that second goal for me really said a lot about Manchester City as well. It was like they were completely unprepared for the counter-attack there. Yeah. And you had Alicia and Gallagher. If you look it back, they were completely unmarked in the box. You had John Stone standing sort of on the edge of the six-yard box, ball-watching. Diaz was somewhere in no-man's land. Rodri, as you mentioned there, strolling around with like the urgency of someone having a nice walk in the park. Uh, not what you'd expect from a Pep Guardiola drill team. 
Well, I, I would say this. I was really confused in that in that break because I, I think they think there's maybe going to be a foul and there's not, and then away goes the counter. And I was really confused why Kyle Walker, who is sticking with Zaha, suddenly more or less completely abandons him. And I forget who it falls to to have to kind of make that. I think it's Bernardo Silva has to make a like 10-yard sprint to try to catch up to Zaha. So he's not in position, and I couldn't figure out why. And I watched, as I want to do, about like 15 times before I realized that Olise does a quick little shimmy as though he's going to go inside and then takes the ball outside. And it completely fools the defender. And I think right there, John Stones thinks, oh, this is going to be a 1v1. I've got to make a play. And that's why he moves across. But from that moment on... It's Bernardo Silva having to crash backwards and try to make a play, but that means the defense slides over to try to help him. And I think once you have that, I, I call it like the domino effect off it. I need a better uh, term for that one. But it's basically just once you've got your opponent reacting and scrambling to react at that, if you keep your head, as Graham pointed out, and keep that ball moving and stay calm and find, find your spots, the other team will continue to kind of careen around and try to make plays, and it keeps opening up bigger and bigger gaps. And I think it's a credit to Palace that they were able to find that gap and take that chance and do so calmly. But at the same time, to your point, Ryan, you would expect more from Manchester City, who you would assume have been drilled and practiced that type of transition mm-hmm. to defense, transition to attack uh, in training. But I also think, again, we have to look at the red card. We have to look at Gabriel Jesus's goal being ruled out for, what, uh, Kevin De Bruyne being like two inches offside, or was it Phil Foden uh, offside Foden. on that one? But there's... Uh, I think the second goal comes when City have thrown everybody forward and they're trying to get a result while being down a man. They did miss two chances at least on those sort of Manchester City, ball in the box, cut back to somebody who's open, shot goes on target. In this game, the shot went over both times. So I think if we're looking at this as like what what did City uh, do or what did uh, Crystal Palace do to provide a blueprint for teams to follow, it's basically work really, really hard, take your chances, don't go into a box too early or go into a bunker too early, but also hope that Man City sort of have an off day. Uh, talking of off days, uh, Merrick Laporte, Graham, certainly had one in this one, giving away the ball for the first uh, goal and then getting uh, sort of gambling on uh, getting the ball for, for, uh, for that red card um, mm-hmm. when he pulled down Wolf Zaha as well. It, it wasn't that long ago where he was the absolute linchpin of this team, where he was the Virgil van Dijk. He was the player they couldn't do without. John Stones will be uh, getting that spot now, won't he, Graham? <laughs> Well, I guess he'll have to now, that, definitely uh, have to. <laughs> now that he's suspended and uh, Nathan Ake continues to fade like Marty McFly in that picture of his family. <laughs> um, yeah, Laporte, even Laporte's early season form I thought was pretty good. I remember writing a piece in the first few weeks of the season about how Laporte and um, Diaz, that name escaped me for a moment there. Yeah, Laporte and, and Diaz were kind of the first choice centre-back pairing for City and John Stones, I know he reported late after the Euros, but he went something like a month and a half without playing a, a single minute for Manchester City, so he was very much down the pecking order, but yeah, this is his opportunity. I mean, it's not so bad for City, is it? I mean, John Stones was one of the best defenders in the Premier League last season, and so now they're going to bring out, they're going to have Laporte out, and then they're going to they're bring in John Stones. Like, teams, other teams are, would be in worse positions than <laughs> Manchester City for options. Very, very true, Graham. And uh, I mentioned the uh, 27, or it might have been 127 articles you wrote this weekend, one of them about Kevin De Bruyne as well. Uh, yeah didn't have a great game here uh what did you make of that and him him getting yanked off i think his form must be a bit of a concern for gardula because he looks like a player who is in desperate needs of a rest having played pretty much every match since returning from injury but the catch 22 situation for city is they can't really do without him either so when he's on the pitch he's 
he is not playing 100% and they're 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 missing peak De Bruyne but having on, him on the pitch still seems like a better solution than not having him on the pitch when he when he comes off the pitch I mean he gets he gets taken off about the 60 minute mark of of this match and I don't really feel like things got any better for City after after that moment. It wasn't like when he came off, there was a lot more energy or they were finding it easier to play through Palace. So, yeah, De Bruyne's, De Bruyne's a little bit of a concern for City at the moment. Um, I don't know if he's... I assume he's going to get a call-up for the international break, but if I was Guardiola, given that Belgium are in a pretty good position for World Cup qualifying, I would be pleading with Roberto Martinez uh, not, to, not to play him, maybe every minute of those matches pull, pull in alex ferguson don't release him don't release him yeah yeah just <laughs> tie him up at the etihad don't Pre- let him leave pretend he's injured do the ryan Giggs routine uh taylor any any uh anything else on this game before we move on sir no i think uh, i'm still working on my casting choices uh but uh, i think i think I've, I've covered plenty of that so we can move on <laughs> excellent well you work on those while we take another quick break we'll be back with some uh games from the continent this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's talk about some continental action in the Bundesliga by Munich State, top with a 5-2 win at Union Berlin. RB Leipzig remain thoroughly mid-table with a 1-1 draw at Eintracht Frankfurt on Saturday. And uh, Erling Haaland free Borussia Dortmund beat Cologne 2-0 at home to stay within a point of Bayern. Bayern still going to win it, Taylor? Yeah? Yeah? yeah. Uh, yes. Good. It's okay. all an illusion. There is no title race. <laughs> It's somehow more impressive this season. That like I know Liverpool and Man City are continuing to do Liverpool and Man City things, but when we have downturns in form for some of the biggest clubs in Europe, 
for Bayern to just continue to be completely unaffected is not surprising, but also impressive and a little bit frustrating. Indeed. Just shrug, casually shrugging as they charge to another yep. title. Indeed, Taylor. <laughs> uh, in Serie A, meanwhile, Napoli are still top and undefeated after a 1-0 win at Salernitana. Uh, Inter Milan, a third after a 2-0 win over Udinese. Juventus, ninth Ooh, place. Boy. Mid-table Juventus, Graham. Fourth loss of the season. 2-1 at Verona. Is that part of the course now? A, a Juventus loss on the weekend? Uh, well, yes, for this season, but it doesn't make it any uh, any less shocking. Yeah, and obviously coming on the back of a... They lost during the week as well, didn't mm-hmm. they? So two, two defeats in a row. So, yeah, Allegri is not coming up with the answers that I think they thought he would coming back to the club for this for this season. It's Retiro time. It's Retiro time. Did you all see that one? I did not. They're Elaborate. going. They're doing the the week behind closed doors where they have to live in the trading facility, and I think oh, wow. I think their phones might be confiscated. <laughs> oh. I forget if that's part of it, but they they spend a week away from their family, just training, and the idea is it resets the team, it refocuses them, and gets them going. So maybe the idea is that there's a mentality shift that needs to be corrected. They need to kind of get that that winning instinct back. Uh, but for the most part, it feels like maybe they just need to train a whole bunch and get some of that discipline going. Isn't that where we sent Ryan last week? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. It's a solitary. I think mean, if, if a, if a uh, team's unhappy, the best way to uh, make them happier is to make yep. them all stay within close confines of one another for an entire week with no other stimulus at all. Is that right, Taylor? I mean, it worked in Remember the Titans, so I think that's what they're going for here. It's going to be a lot of singing into hairbrushes and late nights, and at the end of it, Weston McKinney is going to bring this team back, and they're going to win the Virginia State title. I think that's how it plays out. Again, more movie references. Excellent. Keep them coming, T-Rock. Keep them coming. Meanwhile, we will go to Roma at the Stadio Olimpico, losing 2-1 to Milan. Uh, this was the biggest match of Week 11 in Serie A. Uh, Roma losing their digital bits to the Rossoneri, Graham. The blockchain for brands, as we were reminded by the ads around the uh, the uh, game all game long. Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Graham, taking the headlines here. His 400th goal of his domestic career with the free kick, the 150th of his Serie A career as well. Amazing, low-driven free kick. Uh, he won the penalty for Milan's second goal as well. Uh, Stefano Schuari, uh, former Milan player, getting the consolation in the 93rd minute. Before we go into this game, by the way, um, did we notice the, the song that was played at the stadium when El Schuari scored? It was Smells Like Teen Spirit, Taylor. <laughs> I mean, it's a good one. It gets the, 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 the blood pumping, gets the energy going. I like it. I don't think Stephen El Shirawi is still a teenager, but otherwise, fine. But why? Why was it happening? Do you think Jose Mourinho insisted upon some Nirvana when uh, when they score a what? consolation goal? Then they used to play Blink One Eighty Two. I think that was Napoli. I was trying oh, to think. Right, okay. It was an Italian team, or maybe they still do play it. They certainly were during quarantine. Uh, is, is Italy just living off like Kerrang? Uh, <laughs> magazines from like the early two thousands. <laughs> now that's, that's right. what I call music volume forty two. <laughs> right. Okay. Inter Milan play Papa Roach when they score. Uh, fun fact for you there as well. I well, rest my case. Yes, they are. <laughs> um, so, Graham, let's talk about Sassuolo this. Sassuolo play Uncle Cracker, which is very surprising. <laughs> you wouldn't expect that. Uncle Cracker. Excellent reference. I love it. Let's keep that coming. And you do indeed. He's um, doing the score to my movie. I don't know if I said that already. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be real bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> it sounds it. It's Gerard Butler uh, is uh, is involved as well. I can't wait to see that one, Taylor. And Paulie Shore. And Paulie Shore. But maybe not Jose Mourinho, Taylor, because he's very, very unhappy after yes. this game. Uh, he refused to answer any questions to the media after this one. Compliments to Milan, he said. I don't want to say anything else because otherwise I won't be on the touchline next week. And he's had himself a red card ban, which he served uh, during the, the week. just the same thing over yeah. and yeah, over again. It is. It is. So there was maybe a few things, Graham, that Mourinho could have been unhappy about in this one. There was some time wasting uh, going on by Milan. The Milan penalty decision was maybe controversial when Ibanez um, hip-checked Slatan for the penalty, arguably. They were denied their own penalty late on when uh, Simon Kier uh, had a had a handballish kind of challenge uh, when, when he was uh, going with uh, Pellegrini. But it was Fabio Maresca, the referee here, Graham, who I think seems to be Italy's Mike Dean. He wants hmm. to make himself the centre at all times. He certainly has a history <laughs> with Milan in this one. It just seemed to me, Graham, that there were maybe bad calls for both teams and it yeah, levelled out in the end. I'm not falling for it. I'm not falling for it with Mourinho. Like the thing he should be most unhappy about were the fact was is the fact that his Roma team didn't play as well as AC Milan in this match. Mm. Um, yeah, his his three season cycle that he used to go through at clubs is now seems to be a three month cycle, uh, and things are good. The good start that he made at Roma feels a very long time ago. With almost every match I watch Roma, and I have watched Roma a number of times this season. Um, I guess that's when Mourinho goes to the club that's what happens you do tend to gravitate towards watching that team but yeah. they seem to have fewer and fewer ideas in every match that I watch and and in this match they're, they were quite successful with a number of pullbacks they did have a, a pullbacks from the, the byline I should say they, they did create a number of opportunities Pellegrini and, and uh, Tammy Abraham both had good chances but I still felt like they were quite one dimensional and, and their pattern of attacking play particularly in the second half was really quite repetitive, cross, 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 another cross. And even though Roma scored late on and had a man advantage for a lot of that second half, I personally, and I watched this one live, I personally never felt like AC Milan were at any great risk. Even with 10 men, I felt like they were going to coast to, even if they conceded the goal, which obviously they did late on, they were still going to have enough to get the yeah. three points. And it just feels like the same old the same old uh, story for Mourinho. That front three that Roma had that started this match of Tammy Abraham, Henrik Mkhitaryan, Nicolas uh, Zaniolo and uh, Pellegrini should be capable of creating much more. That's arguably the best front four in all of Serie A. It's up there as one of the best, certainly. And it, it's just a... A team that is lacking in ideas, as I say, with I'm repeating myself a little bit, but with every match, they just seem to be losing a little bit more edge. While they did start the season well, that seems a long time ago. Graham, what do we think about a, a Roma team chasing a win, taking off both fullbacks and your recognised striker in Tamri Abraham? Is that, you mentioned me, you're running out of ideas. What was that? Uh, <laughs> not sure that's in the same category as Nuno yeah. taking off uh, Lucas Moura yeah the, the similarity to, similarities between Nuno and Mourinho get stronger <laughs> with yeah. every weekend yeah I don't really have an explanation for that indeed well Taylor why don't we talk about Milan who as Graham said were very good in this game and certainly better than Roma I think the best team won here only two points dropped this season as well for Milan uh, despite the injury issues they had which is pretty good uh, they held it together very well Taylor being a man down um, in, in the second half it seemed like um, um, Roma were throwing everything they had at them um, what did you make of them? I agree with everything Graham said it felt like it could have been 4 or 5 nil around the time that that red card happened and mm. and even until 
I guess Roma score maybe around the 80th minute is what it felt like Roma really had like set up shop in Milan's defensive third and and were starting to get some sustained moves going. But even then, takes off Tammy Abraham before the red card happens, so you don't have that sort of central striker option that that can be that number nine, that can be the fox in the box, that can win stuff in the air. And it ends up being a lot of players trying a lot of different things in various moments, but it didn't feel particularly unified. And I look at the way Milan were playing, by contrast, and it is a team that definitely have a structure, that definitely have an identity and a familiarity with what is supposed to happen. So when Kessia drops, everybody knows to hold, and then it will be Benacer, like kind of moves into his position. But at the same time, Benacer is moving, Zlatan is dropping back. And there seems to be a lot of patterns and repetitions in place to allow Milan to build when what they want to do is frustrated. And I think that was Roma's big plan was, basically front and follow that sort of midfield pivot. And they had Veratu and Cristante sitting in and, and trying to hassle and trying to make balls in kind of impossible through the middle, but Milan able to kind of get numbers to create overloads, to create two V ones to eventually pass their way through. And at that point you can see Milan sort of growing into it, bypassing what Roma are doing. And it makes Roma have to retreat and get more defensive and I and I again I echo what Graham said. It felt like Milan always were going to be the dominant team, even when Zlatan is like I think the third deepest outfield player. In a, for a moment, I thought like, oh, look how frustrated he is. He's coming all the way back to get on the ball, but then realizing he's doing that to try to pull people out and to create mm-hmm. space for other teammates. And it, Zlatan just continues to be this curious person who, at times, just seems like he's so above it and isn't going to do the running and doesn't really care what people want want of him. He's going to do his thing, but then in other games, will drop deep and will and make those runs and do some work that you wouldn't expect him to do. And I think it's a unified performance from Milan, who probably have to be frustrated that they haven't lost a game but are still second in the table. Yeah. Napoli, for their part. Also haven't lost a game and are top of the table, but probably frustrated that they're not further top of the table. So a good weekend for both of them, a bad weekend for Roma overall. I think I think a big thing for Zlatan this season with AC Milan is that they have another option who can perform his role in a similar way. So mm-hmm. obviously Giroud comes on in the, in the second half for Zlatan. So previously with AC Milan, it felt like they were dependent on Zlatan, 40-year-old Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and he had to play kind of every single minute of every single game. And now they can ask him to basically for 60 minutes or even 45 minutes if they want to go shorter, you know, give his all for, for that time that he's on the pitch. I mean, the number of times in this match that Zlatan was running in behind a high Roma line. I have to say that high line for Roma wasn't helping them either. Either, But... Zlatan running in behind as the last on playing on the last shoulder of on the def, on the shoulder of the last defender isn't really something you would expect to see from him, but it feels like um, Pioli can ask him to do that because he has Giroud to come off the bench and not they don't really have to change their system. And looking at this match in general, I think their depth is the is the reason I have AC Milan as favourites over Napoli as well as Napoli have started. It feels like they're maybe dependent on in particular. Um, Osiman, I've never been able to pronounce his name, but th- he's having an, an excellent season so far. But if they lost him, maybe that would that would be a big blow to their chances. Whereas AC Milan, you know, Brahim Diaz isn't involved for this match. Sandro Tonali, who's been excellent this season, starts on the bench. As I say, Giroud comes for Zlatan. So that depth is mm. is a big difference maker for me between the two teams at the top top of Serie A at the moment. Yeah. But Graham, you forgot to mention that it's all a conspiracy and the referees just want Milan to win and that's why they get penalties. You forgot that that part. See, I would dismiss <laughs> that, but you know, Italy. <laughs> so oh, maybe. Good I so I, I I have a little a little sympathy for Roma on this one. And it's the 
confusing situation on the penalty of there is contact, and I think it's correctly given. But the thing that I kept focusing on is, if you watch it again, Zlatan, before that contact occurs, is already dragging his foot. And that, that might have been he anticipates that there's going to be a collision, so he's trying to kind of hold up the run a little bit, and that means he's going to drag the foot to slow himself down. But it looks to me like he's anticipating contact and drawing that foot back to make sure his leg is still there when the contact occurs, so it looks even worse and so I don't think that's a dive I don't think that's him simulating but I think it's him recognizing oh this player is going to make a play on the ball but they're not going to be able to make a clean play they're probably going to kick me especially if I leave my leg out and so he does and that's exactly what happens and I think if you're a Roma fan I see why that would look like some gamesmanship some craftiness some diving but I think it's just the first two and not the third. I think it's lots on recognizing from his veteran experience, this is how I'm going to earn a penalty, and he did just that. So I get why there's a lot of frustration, not just with that call, but with many others from Oresco, who I think does have that reputation of making it about himself and getting in yeah. players' faces and wanting to wait till the camera's on him to show the card. I think that doesn't create much goodwill or love for the official, but I think in this case, he did get it right with that penalty, even if there were some slightly dodgy aspects to it. I'm going to go back and look at that again, Taylor, because one of the points I was going to make is that Zlatan wins fouls like that with a minimum of fuss and doesn't seem to play for them. I thought that was Mm -hmm. relatively well run, but I will take another look at that for sure. Um, One thing also from the free kick that he scored, that low-driven free kick, um, tremendous goal. And Roma had a player lying down under the wall, and it didn't work. Can we stop doing that now? Graham, can we stop it now, please? Uh, yes, I vote yes. <laughs> but um, what, what I would say is Roma learned from Denmark because Roma had three players standing next to the wall who all then immediately vacate that space as mm. Latham is starting his approach. And so then the goalkeeper has to adjust their positioning. I think Rui Patricio expects Latham to try to bend it around the wall to the near post because all those players are standing there. Once they move, he's already cheating to his right, but that ball is being fired to his left and I think can't adjust to it. So the guy on the ground didn't do much, but I think if they'd had two, maybe lying foot to foot, then you've got it covered, then you're fine. So let's get more people laying down in the box. And uh, in unfortunate Slatter-related news in this game, Roma fans were chanting Seon Zagado, which is you are a gypsy at him. Um, Zlatan gestured to them to sing louder and got booked by um, Mr. Modesca for that. So mm-hmm. the response to racism punished Not more ideal. than the racism in Italy? Fantastic. Um, but yeah, uh, Milan deserved the win here. And I think the strength of the control they had, certainly from my perspective, was the spine that they had. Chiara and Tomori in the back, Benacer and Kessie in the middle, uh, in the middle and um, right up through uh, Zlatan uh, in the top as well. And the depth they've got, they're looking very good indeed this season. Maybe not so much... For Roma. Gents, why don't we take one more game in, in this weekend review? Let's head to La Liga, where Real Sociedad are still top after a 1-1 home draw with Athletic Club. Uh, they have played more uh, one more game than Real Madrid, who got a 2-1 win at Elche. Atletico Madrid are preparing for their forthcoming loss at Anfield with a 3-0 <laughs> win over Real Betis. It's coming, Graham. It's coming. Don't believe it or not. Um, but we got a glimpse, Graham, at post Kuman Barcelona. Barca won. Alaves won. Uh, <laughs> Memphis scoring the opener before Luis Rioja equalising minutes later. Two really good goals here. And Graham, the Rioja yeah. goal, it was like the most Messi-esque goal we've seen at that stadium <laughs> since Messi was there. Yeah, which is maybe not what Barcelona fans want to hear. Uh, but yes, it was it was an excellent goal. And obviously it came immediately after Barcelona had opened the scoring. Mm. And um, 
this another one that I that I watched live and and at that point I'd kind of slightly zoned out a little bit and so that it was quite surreal to see that goal scored at the camp now that by a team that isn't Barcelona and mm. there was a I had to double check for a moment like was that offside or did the referee blow his whistle early and people stop playing oh no wait it's just an excellent opposition goal and I think I've got mixed thoughts about this Barcelona performance in general so. My first thought is that even though Coleman is gone, a lot of the old problems still remain. Um, and this was generally still quite a lacklustre performance by Barcelona. I mean, it, you know, it has to be. It was They drew one all at home against Alaves. But I do also think there were some subtle signs of improvement for Barcelona. For one thing, their oh. pressing was a bit more proactive. It was just that they couldn't do it for the whole match, which is understandable given that Sergi has only had... Uh, he was only in charge for a couple of days before this, ma- this match and... That'll take a bit of time to address. There were also periods of the match where Barcelona played with much higher tempo in their possession, particularly at the start of the second half when uh, Gavi seemed to be playing at one and a half times speed for about 15 minute periods. But then they slowed down a bit more in the in the kind of final 15 minutes, you would say, of 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 each half. Um, but there, they, there was a bit more purpose to their play, which I guess is encouraging but still a long still a long way to go for this group of that, players and and it's not quite sure it seemed like Xavi was nailed on to yeah. be the new head coach and the past couple of days it's gone silent on that front so I'm not entirely sure what's going on it's yeah. almost like he's contracted to manage another club who didn't love the way everybody was discussing as though Xavi was already <laughs> managing Barcelona and who would he bring in and what would he change when he is Still in Qatar, managing Al-Sad. I think that's partially why things have gone slightly more quiet. Yeah, and I, I should mention, it was Sergi, as Graham said, it was Sergi Bowen in charge here. Barca B's manager, he's interim manager at Barcelona at the moment. He played as a left-back under Johan Cruyff in the 90s for Barca. The other headline from this game uh, as well is Sergio Aguero uh, leaving the game in the 42nd minute uh, in an ambulance. He had a heart rate issue. His heart rate was higher than it should have been. He was struggling to breathe. Uh, so we hope Sergio is okay after mm-hmm. that one. Um Taylor, what did you make of Barcelona here? And we mentioned that second goal, uh, sorry, the equalizing goal, and it was a thing of Messi-esque wonder, but it was also a thing of bad defending, which needs fixing in this Barcelona team still. I mean, a lot of things need fixing in this Barcelona team and in Barcelona as a whole. And I think that that's sort of why I'm glad we're talking about this, because we haven't talked about Kuman sacking. We haven't talking about talked much about what happens next. And I think you can talk about the games that Barca play with Barwan in charge and with some of the like the squad rotation he's doing and with some players injured. But I think for the most part, we won't have answers until we know who's coming in next. And I do think that will be Xavi. But I do think that kind of... This is my theory, at least, uh, Graham Ryan. I, I welcome you all to shut this down, if you so choose. But my feeling as to why Laporte kind of held off sacking Ronald Koeman for so long, because Koeman was an appointment under, under Bartomeu and... I think a lot of people would have understood if he had sacked Kuman and said, like, nope, this isn't the guy for us. This isn't the way forward. But I think my read is that there was a hopefulness, a hope that if we don't change so much and maybe bring in a few players, we don't have the kind of star-studded lineup we've had in the past, but we have the quality, we have the name, the brand, the institution that is Barcelona that will be able to make something happen. And I think Laporte kept hoping and hoping and hoping that they wouldn't have to do a full rebuild. They wouldn't have to change things up dramatically. And to me, sacking Kuman is the sign that, yeah, okay, we're going to have to do things differently. We can't just sort of keep scraping these little transfers here and there and, and trying to build a squad out with players that sort of aren't of the caliber that we would have needed years ago. 
And so to me, that's where Xavi has been so appealing is sort of bringing in a, a player that I think, or a former player that will allow fans to get on board, to be behind him. And I think we'll have the backing so that Barcelona can go back to playing academy players and bringing through young players. And maybe they're making a signing here and there. But I think for me, this could be Barcelona resetting, going back to the drawing board, reestablishing the basics, bringing through academy players and making something happen with a manager who basically you're saying, you don't have to win right away. We're giving you a couple of years to build this team. And then we expect to be Barcelona again, but built the right way. That's maybe my charitable read on things. But Oof. I basically say all that to say, I don't know what will happen to Barcelona this season. And I don't know how important results results are from one game to the next, because at this point, they're not challenging for the title in my book. They are challenging for the top four, basically, is where I think they are. So how they go about doing that short-term, long-term, I think will be the key for me. I also I also think Coleman was quite a useful barrier for the Barcelona board. Yep. And I think that's maybe why they kept him on. So for instance, this season, all the chat has been about Coleman's decisions and the poor performances rather than how Barcelona just a couple of months ago allowed their greatest ever player to leave mm-hmm. due to financial mismanagement and seem, you know, I know that might not be, that Laporta might not be, be, be blamed for that, but he can certainly be blamed for the communication that led to the trauma of that departure. Yep. Um, and that hasn't really been talked about all that much because Coleman has completely dominated the agenda. So I think in that sense, it is quite risky that Barcelona have sacked him because Laporte has now made his stamp on the management side of things and he's going to make his first appointment of his second spell as president and then he's going to be in the firing line whereas he couldn't really be blamed for Coleman as you say Taylor that was a a Bartomeu appointment so there is a a risk attached and I I was slightly surprised it came when it did I kind of thought that Coleman had weathered the storm a little bit at least until this upcoming international break but I did think that the sacking, the timing of it suggested they had someone lined up. And that brings us back to the point of, have Barcelona made the same mistake again, where they've sacked a manager without being able to get their first choice in? And if they have, that's not ideal. (laughs) Yeah, that's what makes me doubt, Taylor, with all due respect to your point about this being a reset and maybe a long-term plan. It doesn't feel like they plan very much. I think it's uh, is what we're getting from this. Um, one, one Taylor, maybe one ray of light I saw in this was uh, you mentioned bringing academy products through, but Gabby, who Graham mentioned earlier, on the right of midfield, 17 years old, came through Lemazia. He looked good in this game, if, if maybe no other Barcelona players did. Oh, Memphis had a good game, I suppose. Yeah, Me- Memphis, I feel like this is where, like, maybe I've made this point on the show before. This feels like the situation he was made for, of, like, a giant club where he can be the main player. And he wouldn't have been if Messi were still there or Neymar was still there if they decided to build around Dembele and Griezmann, which they obviously did not. But with kind of Barcelona in the form they are, he does get to be that central figure, that main attacking threat, and I think that's where he thrives. And I'm not surprised that he also got the goal. But I think... Again, it's just sort of like, what do we know? What don't we know? And what will they do with the squad that they have? I I think you're right that I'm probably trying to read it charitably and say (laughs) you're appointing Xavi to go back to what worked in the past and try to reestablish those kind of grassroots efforts. Just because, like, the only other explanation is just, like, massive incompetence and malfeasance and, and a little bit of apathy as well. And I just feel like Barcelona, more than a lot of other clubs, don't really allow for that level of apathy. So I struggle to, to see what's going on aside from people just want to have the success without having to spend the money. And when they do, they spend too much of it. There is a lot of apathy at Barcelona right now. Did anyone see the attendance for this game? 
That is Thir- thirty-seven thousand <laughs> two hundred and seventy-eight. Keep in yeah. mind there are no crowd restrictions in Barcelona and Spain anymore, and that stadium holds pretty much a hundred thousand people. That yeah. is a pretty stark sign of how that those that that fan base just feels completely detached from that yeah. team at the moment, and that that's probably another reason why Laporta is so keen to get uh, Xavi Hernandez in because that connection will probably instantly be reestablished if he's the the manager and graham my understanding is most of those a lot of those people in the stadium would be season ticket holders so it's not they're not selling tickets it's people with tickets not showing up it's people deciding that they've got something better to do than watch their team on a saturday night or whenever this game was played yeah which is quite the statement that's not the best. Uh, one other thing from this game or from around this game, Leo Messi quoted as saying, I want to return to Barca one day to help and contribute as a technical director. I want to give back to the club that I love. Um, Graham, what do you think about that? Leo Messi coming back as a sporting or technical director. Is that a case of Barcelona employing someone who's not qu- fully qualified for the role, maybe? <laughs> They might have to fight Gerard Piquet for that yes. role. Yes, um, you know that's he's got his sights in that, along with uh, Balloon the World Balloon Cup, World maybe. Cup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if yeah. yeah, Piquet needs to focus on Balloon World Cup, then um, um, Messi can come and focus on this clown car or whatever. Yeah, going I mean, on. I'm not sure. Maybe he would be a good technical director, but I always felt like the downside of Messi as a Barcelona player was how much influence he had at the club off the pitch. That was like a bad thing generally mm. about him as a Barcelona player. So I don't know. If he's going to go back to Barcelona and he's you're getting the bad bit of him rather than the good bit if he's going to go back as a technical director. I think, um, you know, he's a man of few words. I imagine him having a big office somewhere near or in the Camp Nou and he just brings that giant dog of his in. You know, the dog that's like as big as three yeah. people. Yep. He sits there saying nothing, giant dog next to him. If you're a player and you're called in there, you, you just, you, you'll do whatever he says, right? Or what if he doesn't say, indeed. I think maybe, maybe they're actually, a winner. I actually think that would be part of the problem. Similar to the stories about uh, Thierry Henry when he first took over Monaco and he was just like in training, like, just do this. And he would hit like a perfect <laughs> shot from 40 yards out. Like, why can't you do that? And it's like, because we're not Thierry Henry, man. Like, I, I picture people going into Messi's office and him being like, just dribble through eight people and shoot from an angle that you have no business shooting from, mm. but tuck it in neatly into the side netting. Why is that so hard? And the response would be like, because it's really hard, dude. Like, I I just really enjoy Messi demanding that players do messy things and then being flustered when they don't. Yeah, why can't other people be world-class and not pay their tax? I ask you. (laughs) Anyway, we should probably wrap up this episode of the Weekend Review. A very fun one indeed. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contributions. I look forward to your upcoming um, film project with Billy Baldwin instead of someone really good. Uh, Daniel Baldwin. (laughs) Get it right. Get it right. Get it right. Wow, the ball wins. And also, good to have you back, buddy. Nice talking to you today. You too, bud. And you, Graham Rudsman. I enjoy my time with you as always, sir. And I want to give you a big virtual hug. Bleh. I don't. But thank you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, listener. Back soon. Bye. Bye.